You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. When I, when I was in college, we had a chapel service every week. And a lot of times we'd have people come in from different places and all over to not only teach, but to lead the music. And we had a special guest one particular week and he sang a song. And in the chorus, it just repeated over and over and over again that God is love. And I had a friend who at times could be a little much, to say the least. And for whatever reason, he was growing increasingly restless through this entire song. And then when the next chorus rolls around, every time the worship leader sang the phrase, God is love, he decided that in some sort of weird, righteous indignation, that he would just scream the word wrath, which in general, screaming the word wrath in the middle of a service of any kind, but a group of people of any kind does not get across any greater theological point, but it just kind of feels murdery in in all honesty. And so we were deeply disturbed by what he was doing. And so afterwards we're like, Hey buddy, what was that? And so he starts talking and his heart was, I guess, in somewhat of the right place. But he said, you know, I just, I feel like every song that we sing talks about God is love. And I believe that, that God is love, but also, you know, God gets angry and God is a God of wrath. And we never sing about those things. Like, okay, well, probably true, but also probably a bizarre way to go about getting this accomplished. Although I did think about it. I heard a story once about J.R.R. Tolkien's grandson used to tell the story about when the Catholic Church moved the mass from Latin to English. It's deeply disturbed, J.R.R. Tolkien. And he would sit in the back of the sanctuary and just shout the entire mass in Latin, which I assume people just let that go because he wrote Lord of the Rings and stuff. My friend did not. And so we were just like, stop doing that. But it made me think about how we view and and understand God a little bit. And I started to realize that the characteristics of of God, and as we talked last week, God is such a, a full being and has so many divine attributes and characteristics. But there is a temptation and a tendency for all of us to identify the parts and the characteristics of God that we agree with or that we resonate with more and emphasize those things above the other. And so maybe if you're a particularly loving person, or maybe if you're someone who hasn't received a great deal of love and affection in your life, then maybe you cling to the idea that God is a God of love and grace and mercy. But maybe if you're someone who who struggles with loving others a bit, or maybe if you're someone who has been treated harshly over the course of your life and, and has to have great difficulties with those around you, maybe it can be easy to resonate and identify with the fact that God is a God who gets angry and a God who is a just and holy judge and burns with a, a righteous wrath. But we've seen that the fullness of God's character all comes together to make him who he is. And we see that on display from beginning to end over the big narrative of the Bible. And in the book of Revelation, we are on a pathway heading towards something spectacular. Since the beginning of this series, my heart has just been anxious to get to Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 21 because they're some of my favorite passages to teach in scripture. And they're the passages that I often cling on to when I feel that desperate need for hope and affirmation from God. But there's a long road to get there. The book of Revelation covers 2,000 years of history so far. And to get to this place, 
where we see God recreating the world and building a perfect city of eternal love, he first has to deal with sin and with his enemies that would seek to destroy his good and perfect creation. And so this morning, we're going to look at two chapters of scripture, a big section of of the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at some of the things that this particular passage teaches us about the character of God as judge and looking forward to this future wrath as God comes in judgment and Christ returns to make everything right and everything new. And so we're going to read a big section here today. I'm going to ask you to, to hang on with me as we go through two full chapters of scripture and then start looking at a passage that can be either uncomfortable or possibly difficult to grasp, but also recognizing the hope and the beauty that comes and even seeing God as a just and righteous judge. And so beginning in chapter 15, going all the way through chapter 16, this is the word of God. John says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with gold sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became like blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was? For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had poured over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heavens for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, 
and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go out naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them in that place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out from the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since the earth, or since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, as always, we do thank you for your word. And this is a heavy word today. And so as we think about the great anger and anguish that you have towards sin. Gotta pray that this passage draws us to repentance, helps us to recognize our need for your grace and your mercy, but also, God, that we see you more clearly, that we recognize the importance of our work in this world as we are ambassadors of the gospel and of your reconciliation but God, that this passage would also point us towards what's to come. So help us to see your goodness and your grace in the midst of your justice and judgment. And we ask all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So we're gonna look at four characteristics of God's wrath this morning that we can see on display throughout this entire chapter and we'll continue to see. We're gonna move out of Revelation for one week next week as we look at the, the message and the meaning of the Advent season and how that ties in to the book of Revelation and to moving into the Christmas season in the life of the church. But then beyond that, we're gonna move into another picture of God's judgment of the kingdoms and nations of this world. And when we look at these two passages in particular, the first thing that we see about the nature and character of God's wrath is that God's wrath is timely. God's wrath is timely. They recently, in the summer, decided that just outside of the road on which my wife and I live, that there needed to be a roundabout. Now, if you've been to our house, we live in a weird backwards little country road that, that has very little traffic or flow. There was a four-way stop outside of it that people managed pretty well. Not a big deal. Everyone could navigate it. I have a suspicion that we're some sort of weird guinea pigs where they're trying out how roundabouts work. And so they just chose this place randomly and decided to punish us for sins that we did not commit. So it was a mess. They were doing work on the road for all this time and building the roundabout and whatever. It was fine. Just get it over with. We'll learn. We'll navigate. But then they did this weird thing where they didn't make the roundabout very big. 
In fact, it's about the same size as the four-way stop was. Now, I've been around some roundabouts before. It's a fairly new thing, I think. I don't remember a lot of them growing up, but it's a, it's a thing that happens, and they're usually pretty easy to navigate because most of them are big enough to where if two cars arrive at the same time, they can continue around the pathway and everyone navigates safely. But this one is little bitty. And so it is entirely possible, and I know this because I have seen it done, where someone can be coming from one direction, see the roundabout, barely move their wheel enough to the side, and just go straight through like it doesn't exist. And so navigating this roundabout is horrifyingly dangerous. And so it causes great confusion when people especially arrive at the same time. And there's been a couple times where three or four of us get to it at the same time and we do it perfectly. And I feel like we should all just stop our cars and get out and just congratulate one another because it's a thing of absolute synchronicity and beauty. But there are other times when people get to the roundabout and maybe they're expecting stop signs. Maybe they think, why is it so tiny? Maybe they see the oddly colored bricks because they chose a very strange color red to go on top of the bricks on top of it. And they just freeze like deer. In fact, the deer around my house freeze less often than the people do at this roundabout. And so they pull up to the roundabout and they just stop. And I'm sure the thought process is, if I just stop here, nothing bad will happen. And I'm going to be patient. And I'm just going to let everybody else go. But then that causes even more confusion because then somebody else thinks they need to stop. And then you've got the person who's not going to stop no matter what, who just flies through it. And it becomes very tense and very dangerous. And there is no after party for this sort of interaction at the roundabout. Because at a certain point in situations like that, patience can become inactivity and inactivity can be very dangerous. And the same thing is true in, in the Christian life. There are a lot of times when we look at, at our lack of motion in our faith and stepping out on faith and doing what we're called to do, we think of it as patience, but in reality, it's either fear or apathy and inactivity that can cause great problems in our relationship with Christ and also in the work that we're called to do. And this is a problem because we're called to reflect the character of our God, and our God is not an inactive God. We looked last week at this song that's sung about the character and the nature of God. And we saw that he's holy and righteous and just. We've looked at a multitude of passages of scripture throughout the book of Revelation and, and around that during this study that's described God as a God of great patience, that he is merciful and kind and gracious and is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But eventually, because he is a just and righteous God, he has to right wrongs and he has to bring justice to sin and evil. And that's where we find this characteristic of God as being incredibly timely. Because this God that we serve and that we worship, he is never in a hurry. He never acts out of, out of randomness or desperation, but he is also a God who is never late. Think about Genesis chapter one and the way in which God chose to describe the creation of the heavens and the earth. And we get this incredible, beautiful passage that reveals it to us in the form of a seven-day week, where we see God acting and moving as a God of order and a God of design and a God of purpose, that everything has its time and its place. All through the Old Testament, as we see God working and moving through the people of Israel, we see that everything is timed out according to his goodness and his sovereignty. 
He comes to Abram and he says, hey, I've got a plan for you, but it's not really going to start kicking into effect until about 400 years from now, because your people that I'm going to provide for you are going to need to be in captivity and slavery while the sin of the Canaanites is completed. And then with every king and every passing moment over the course of this kingdom building time in the Old Testament, God is sovereignly crafting this narrative that's leading us towards Christ. Even in the midst of exile, God is sending these prophets, reminding his people, listen, I have a plan. Everything I promised you in Genesis 3, everything I promised you in Genesis chapter 12, all of these things are coming to fruition. You just need to hold on and wait a little while because, as we're told in the New Testament, in the fullness of time, at the exact time that God planned before the foundations of the world, he sent his son into the world to redeem and to save his people and his creation. We have an entire book of the Bible that reminds us that everything has a season. The book of Ecclesiastes says that there is a season for all of these things, but in the end of it all, the, the message that we need to understand is to trust God and fear God and worship him because he has all of these things put into place for a reason. And we recognize that part of God's characteristic is that he's never in a hurry, he's never late, but he is always on time in everything that he does. God's creation is always on time. God's redemption is always on time. God's purposes are always on time. God's provision is always on time. His salvation is always on time. And there will be a day when his wrath and judgment will be right on time. Through these chapters of scripture, we see this language of God's wrath being finished. In chapter 15, there at the beginning, it says these seven angels have these seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. It's done. There is a time and a place set apart just for God to move in this way. Again, in verse 8 of chapter 15, it says the sanctuary that no one was allowed to go into during this time of wrath and judgment, that it's filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter it until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Again, this reminder that God is constantly working according to his timing and his purposes. And so there will be a day when the wrath of God will come in its final judgment and it will end exactly as he has determined because the wrath of God is timely. The wrath of God is also holistic. When we look at, again, Genesis chapter one, we see this incredible picture of a world that in Genesis chapter one, one and two is dark and it's formless and it's empty. The spirit of God is hovering, holding all those things in place and God begins to bring light into the darkness. God begins to bring form to the formless creation. He begins to fill it all up. And we see God touch every aspect of creation from the heavens to the earth, to the things under the earth, to all the creatures that would fly in the air, that would live on the land, that would be below the sea. And even humanity himself, we see God in his fullness bringing about the total picture of his salvation and his creation. When we look at Revelation, we saw this, this scroll that was sealed with seven seals, that this representation of the full plan of God. 
and how he was going to bring about redemption to his lost and broken creation. And there's an awe around this plan of God. And when it's opened by Christ, there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes because it's so magnificently planned out and so holy and so awesome. And time and time again throughout scripture, we are reminded that God never does anything halfway, that his creation was in full that his provision is always in full according to the measure of his riches and grace, that his salvation is a once and for all thing that he begins in us through Christ Jesus and keeps us being saved all the way until the day that he completes it in Christ Jesus. And in the same way, when it comes to God's wrath, this is not something that he does halfway. And we've seen this number seven come up time and time and time again, representing this idea of completion and totality and giving this beautiful symmetry to this amazing vision that John is receiving. And of course, this is tying the seven bowls of God's wrath in with the seven trumpets and the seven seals and giving us this continuity all the way through the book. But I think there's also a parallel here with that picture of creation that comes in seven days. And we see this, in essence, an undoing of creation as God's wrath touches the same place, as God's judgment touches the same places that God's creation finds itself. We see at the very beginning that this angel pours out his bowl on the earth, and then we see angels pouring out their bowls into the lakes and the rivers and the springs. We see the angels pouring out wrath on the sun itself and on the heavens. We see the same thing happening now to the kingdoms of the beast and all of the people that follow the beast. And we see this incredibly totalitarian picture of God's wrath and God's judgment. It falls on creation itself, on the heavens, on humanity, on this representation of the spiritual enemies of God and their kingdoms. It is a very full picture of God bringing about something overwhelming. As I mentioned earlier, the book of Revelation tells the story of God building a city. Genesis, we see the picture of God building a temple. In Revelation, we see the picture of God building a city that in Revelation 20 and 21, we're going to see him bring that city into earth and unite heaven and earth once and for all. And as he's doing this, as he's building this good and this perfect city and bringing about what John and what Isaiah call new creation, new heavens and new earth, part of that is driving out anything and everything that is sinful and corrupt as he's bringing about this perfect eternity. And when we see this, when we recognize the language in this passage, it's incredibly overwhelming and even at times uncomfortable, even as we're reading it this morning, maybe it made you wince a little bit as you're seeing all of these things, these representations of God's anger and wrath and judgment on creation and sin. But this is also a reminder of the kind of new world that God is building. This is a purification. This is God removing all the things that don't belong in his good and perfect creation, taking those things out, removing them once and for all, and all that will be left behind is the goodness and the design that God had for creation from the very beginning. And in fact, as we'll see as we go later on in this passage, it's not a return to Eden. It is a new and better Eden designed the way that God has called us to exist forever a complete and a total restoration. 
And so as we see this holistic and total nature of God's judgment, we're also reminded of the complete and total nature of God's redemption for those who follow and trust in him. And so his wrath and judgment is timely and it's holistic, but it's also just. It's just. Listen to what the angel sings here in verse four, five, six, and seven. It says, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs and water, and they became like blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. God isn't backing away from taking ownership of what he's doing here. He says, you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. And then listen to this. This is a harsh phrase here. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. And when we get to passages like this, this is where we have to start asking difficult and, and very overwhelming questions because we see a very clear division here. And we talked about this over the past couple weeks, but there is a very clear division here between those who conquered the beast and its image and its number and its name and then those who did not those who followed the beast and rejected God. And it says here, cursing God because of all that he had done. And so we start asking the question, who's where? Who receives the judgment of God? Who receives the salvation of God? And of course, the naturalistic thought, and we've talked about this so many times, but the natural thought is, well, I guess good people receive the justice of God and they receive the goodness of God and they receive his grace and mercy, and then bad people receive his judgment. But then we have other passages of scripture that remind us that there is no one good, there is no one righteous, there is no one holy who seeks after God. And then we're in a whole big mess because if no one is good or righteous, then who, who makes it? And it's here, again, we have this reminder as we looked at last week, that God is not fair, but God is just. And that the gospel of God is not fair because the Bible teaches that it's by grace alone that we're saved that there is nothing that we can do. There are no works that we can stack up. There's no righteousness. There's no church attendance record. There's nothing that we can do to build a resume that we would present to God where he says, yep, that's enough to outweigh your sin. That's enough to outweigh the corruption and brokenness that you have living inside of you so you make it in. And so something had to be done on our behalf where Jesus, the son of God, God with us, the incarnate God of the universe walks into time and space and he lives and he breathes and he teaches and he fulfills the law, every dot and tittle. And he marches his way to Jerusalem and was stretched out on a criminal's cross for sins that he didn't commit. In fact, the Bible teaches that he who had no sin became sin for us and that's not fair. It's not fair that God would do that for us because it was our fault. Every single one of us is guilty and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And the Bible teaches that whoever calls on the name of the Lord should be saved. That God has given Christ so that he can draw his people to himself through his love and his kindness and his mercy. And that's not fair. But then there is the other side of this as well. And what we recognize here is that the ones who receive this wrath, 
And the language here is this, this language of rejection and cursing God and turning away from God. So the ones who receive this wrath are those who have rejected Christ and in essence chosen his enemies over his salvation and his wrath over his love. And in part we see here that this wrath of God reflects his character, that it is good, that it is holy, that it is righteous, and that it is just. And at its essence, the wrath of God is the creator of the universe relenting from his own desires. We've we've looked at the passage of scripture that teaches us that God is slow to anger, not as some count slowness, but that he is patient with us because the desire of the God of the universe is that no one should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance and redemption. And yet here we see this picture of the God of the universe relenting from his own desire to give his enemies what they want. C.S. Lewis described hell as a place that is locked from the inside. And we see this incredibly harsh picture of people receiving life without the redemption and salvation of the God of the universe. So just as we see that God's wrath is total in its nature, but not excessive, here we see that it's not random or meaningless, but that God is a just and holy and righteous judge. And that altar cries out, yes, Lord, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. Not fair because salvation isn't fair in the fact that Jesus gives freely to all who believe in him and it's not based on our works but his, but just in the sense that for those who don't follow Christ, for those who don't trust in his grace and his mercy, they get to bear the fruits of their own labors. And so the wrath of God is timely, it's holistic, and it's just. And it's also final. In the classes that I teach through the week, I work at the Walton County Christian Learning Center, and we teach, I teach a fifth grade class, a sixth grade class, a seventh grade class, eighth grade class. We teach different parts of the faith in every different level of that. And in seventh grade, we talk to our students about spiritual disciplines. And for almost every kid, when they come into that class, and I'm describing what we're going to be talking about, I say the word discipline, and all their little faces just melt. (laughs) What do you mean? This is an entire quarter of discipline? Because in their mind, discipline is a very bad thing, right? Discipline, in most children's mind, kind of equates to punishment. And there certainly is sometimes a part of discipline that requires negative consequences for behaviors and things to help correct and, and lead people to where we need to be. But a discipline is anything in our lives that helps us grow in an area of our life. And so athletes practice. Athletes work in the gym. They they sculpt their bodies. They shape their endurance so that when it's time to perform, they have all of the discipline in place. The same thing with musicians and artists. The same thing with people. As we go to work, we learn those practices and we become better at the things that we do. And by doing those disciplined things, and sometimes, again, it's learning from mistakes. Sometimes, again, it's being corrected for things that we do wrong. But that discipline is always designed to get us to a point of growth and get us to a place, especially when we talk about spiritual disciplines, when we look more like Christ in our thoughts, words, and actions, and we represent him well to those around us as we are continually being saved and working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And anyone who follows Christ, we go through times of discipline. 
Sometimes that's because we sin and those sins have consequences that help us to realize the error of our ways and lead us back to God. Sometimes the seasons where God uses times of scripture and prayer and worship together to continue refining us and making us more into his image each and every day. But we all go through discipline and sanctification because we're on this road to being more and more like him each and every day. But as we look at chapter 15 and 16, the language here is different. And that's because this is judgment. This is wrath. This is punishment not discipline. And the reality is it wouldn't matter if it were. Because multiple times in this passage of scripture, we hear this idea that all of this stuff is going on. And then in verse 11, it says, and they cursed God of heaven for their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. And we see this over and over and over again, this, this reminder that this is not a corrective moment here, because these are people that are enduring the fullness of God's judgment. And there is a outright rejection of repentance and of God's grace and his God's mercy all over this passage of scripture. And it reminds me so much of the passage that we see when Jesus teaches this parable about Lazarus and the rich man. And this wicked man dies and he's crying out to Abraham. He's crying out to Lazarus saying, just, just give me a little drink of water. And they say, no. And they say, he says, it just get, let me have a moment. Just let me have a moment to go out and to tell my family because I don't want them to experience what I'm experiencing. And the response is, is striking. When Jesus says, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And there's so much prophetic in that as Jesus is, is on his pathway to his own death and resurrection and knowing that there would be many people, even in light of the greatest miracle the world has ever seen, that would still not follow after him. And this, again, is a reminder of something that we saw a couple weeks ago, that there will be a time when this patience of God and this slowness to anger runs out, and a time when the time for salvation has ended. That there will be a time when one last person confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord and receives that salvation from God. And then God will come in his judgment. And so on one side of this, there has to be a, a call to the gospel. And if you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, the gospel is, is good news. And this isn't one of those things where we look at this as a turn and burn and trying to scare people away from God's wrath because the Bible says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But there will be a time when that kindness ends and that, that judgment takes its place and it's the calling to look to Christ and to see the great kindness and mercy that God has poured out to us, to recognize the slowness to God's anger, that he is patient with us, and that he has called us to come home, that he desires us to be saved by his grace and mercy. And so if you've never put your faith in Christ before, then I implore you to hear the good news of the gospel, that God loved the world, that he gave his only son, and that it's not based on what you do, but based on God's grace and mercy alone, and he gives that to us freely. And so if you've never put your faith in Christ before, then please don't leave here today without talking with me or one of our elders or community group leaders about what it means to be saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus and what it means to be baptized into the family of God. But also there is a call here to work. And we have this incredible passage 
that, that's parenthetical in chapter 16, verse 15. And it says, behold, I come, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go out naked and be seen exposed. And this, this feels so much like all of those parables that Jesus taught about preparing for his return. And this idea that, that he is a, a master of the house, who is leaving for a little while and has entrusted his stewards, his managers, to use what he's given us for his glory and also for the good of those around us. And this is a reminder here that there will be a time when gospel work ends. And as we said just a couple of weeks ago, that we will take off our hats of kingdom building and put on our hats of kingdom living for all eternity. But until then, we have the responsibility and the mission to be the witnesses to Christ here and all over the world and to represent the goodness of God's grace, to proclaim the gospel as often as we're given opportunity, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to give to those who are in need, to care for those who are oppressed and persecuted and give an example of the kingdom of God with every breath that we take because one day the wrath of God will come and the patience of God will end and the judgment of God will be final. So as heavy as this may be, it is a very clear reminder of the implications of sin and this kind of passage, even for those of us who follow after Christ and who have been saved, nothing can take that away. Nothing can steal that away because he has saved us by his grace and mercy alone. And just like there were no good works that were enough to save us, there are no bad works that are enough to strip that away from us. And we have the promise that he began the good work. We'll complete it in us. But we know that we're not perfect and that we still sin and we still fall short. And what we're looking at here is a picture of how God views and understands sin. And so we should dare not take our own sin lightly, but be drawn to confession and repentance day after day after day as God shapes us and refines us like the refiner's silver. It's a reminder of the work that we have to do that for whatever reason, God has entrusted the church with the message of the gospel and with the work of kingdom building. And it's our responsibility to go out and to spread that message everywhere we go through our words and our actions and the way that we live. But this is also a reminder of something better to come. Because after these next few chapters, we start moving into Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 when we have the promise that Christ is going to make all things right and all things new. I love the way that N.T. Wright words that he says that God is putting the world to right. And we get to experience that if we followed after Christ. And so while we look forward somberly, and I love just in the meaning of Advent, and when you look at this, this is an odd color choice, right? We have three purple candles and, and one pink. And that pink reminds us of the joy that we can have. But the purple, it's, it's somber. The meaning of that is that we're in a time of great reflection, just like the people before the birth of Christ were longing and in desperation for the Messiah to be born in the world. We live in a time where as we wait, we work, but we also struggle. And we long for that day when all things are made right and new. And we know that there is a harsh process that has to come before we receive that reward in full as Jesus comes in judgment on the world. And while we are exempt from that because of the grace and mercy of Jesus, it's, it's a hard thing to process. 
but we have that great hope on the other side. And we balance the coming wrath of God with the coming restoration. And we recognize that he has a plan to take the broken things and make them whole, to take sin and shame and guilt and sickness and pain and death and take those things that have polluted his good and perfect creation and remove them outside of the city walls and to have his people restored and redeemed once and for all as a part of his world that's been redeemed and restored once and for all forever. And it's good news that we should be looking forward to and longing for every single day until our faith is made sight. Let's pray.